Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive. Let me just go ahead and get this out of the way. The word O-I-L, how do you pronounce it? If you're from Appalachia, it's one syllable, all. And those who are from Appalachia have been blessed by the Lord, and that is the correct way to say it. They didn't take enough olive. No, no, no. Oil, one syllable. They didn't take enough olive. Oh, you can't do it. Some of you just can't do it. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your burning liquid because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. The word of God for the people of God. <clears throat> well, I'd like to introduce you to a couple of folks this morning. Can I do that? Here they are. The gentleman on your left is the Reverend John Nelson Darby, a Stark man. He was an ordained Anglican Irishman who eventually left the church in protest. And the movement he began became known as the Plymouth Brethren. Anyone familiar with the Plymouth Brethren? A few of you, up north especially. No, Plymouth Brethren. This is, this is not the selection part of the service. Just hang on there. They are quite conservative religiously and have regular disputes and schisms about who can out-fundamental the other. Uh, more about that some other time. Back to John Nelson Darby. He began his career as an attorney, but turned to theology. And with his keen mind and eye for detail, he developed a rather novel theology about the end of the world. His interpretation became known as dispensationalism. Like all theology, like all interpretations, this was his lens, a very complex lens through which he viewed the scriptures and the world. And without going into exhaustive detail of how he arrives at his conclusions, he said the culmination of the world would be something like this. There will be a mysterious, sudden, invisible rapture of the church. All true believers will be caught away to go to heaven. This will launch a seven-year period of great suffering known as the tribulation where the Antichrist will emerge, and at the end of that period, the actual second coming of Jesus will take place. Then we'll get Armageddon, the end of days, and eventually the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now, the gentleman on your right is probably the reason this new interpretation, which is only about 150 years old, why this new interpretation in its theological infancy became so popular in North America. His name is Dr. Cyrus I. Schofield. He, too, began his career as an attorney. There's a theme. But he turned to theology. He became an adherent of Darby and what was at the time called Darbyism over in Ireland. And he published a Bible, one of the first study Bibles with notes and references and commentary in it. The Schofield Study Bible. That explained this dispensational view of Scripture in detail. Many others have followed. Names you might recognize, some you would not. I'll not bore you with them. But I will say that at the popular level, Darby and Schofield's views have completely overwhelmed North American Protestant Christianity when it comes to this thing we call eschatology, the doctrine of the end of days. This rapture-ready, Jesus is coming and the world is going to burn interpretation is the predominant view of North American Protestant Christianity today. For example, there is Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. It is fiction, but it is based on Darby and Schofield's interpretive scheme. Before his death a few years ago, LaHaye had sold more than 80 million copies of these books, along with a horribly produced movie and a few video games. For my part, I read the first few chapters of the first book in the series when it first came out years ago, and I put it down. I didn't need to read any more, and here's why. When I was baptized at 10 years of age and made my profession of faith, I came up out of those waters, and my family and my church gave me a Bible, a Schofield reference Bible. I was raised in Darbyism. I know it like the back of my hand. It would be years into my theological education before I even became aware that there were other ways of interpreting this stuff. There was other ways of looking at it. Two subjects consumed the fundamental churches of my youth. Hell and the rapture. Eternal conscious torment and getting left behind so the Antichrist can martyr you. Very comforting. And you wonder why I turned out the way that I did. I don't have time for hell today. In fact, that's going to be a t-shirt I'm going to start selling. I don't have time for hell today. I thought of that in the first service. It was great. It was great then. It's even better now, right? I don't have time for hell today. But if you'll come Wednesday night to my Bible study, the subject Wednesday night is there will be hell to pay. And it's based on Jesus' use of that term in his parables. And so we'll talk about that Wednesday night, some of Jesus' thoughts on this subject, but I don't have time for hell today. So I will talk about this second one today, this idea of the rapture and the end of the age. Schofield Bible in my hand as a youth, we would have something called rapture practice. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody? All right, everybody do this. Put your hands up. High to the heavens. And then what you do is this. You jump. You're practicing so that when Jesus comes, you know, your legs will be ready to spring. And there was this constant obsession 
of reading the news, looking at world events, and then trying to figure out how it all fit into the book of Revelation, a few chapters out of Daniel and Ezekiel and the Olivet Discourse from Matthew's Gospel. And I'd hear things like this. You better get ready, boy. This OPEC thing means the end of the world's coming. This is in the 70s. It's the end. Wars broke out between Israel and the Arabs. Glory be to God. It means Jesus is coming soon. Jimmy Carter's the Antichrist. Because it says he's coming. Antichrist is going to come as a man of peace. Russia's the kingdom of Gog and Magog in the Bible, you know. So there's going to be a nuclear war. You better pray we get out of here. It's the end. Berlin Wall came down. All of Europe's got together in a new world order. Not so much anymore. And that's the signal that Jesus is coming back. Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. This little invasion into Kuwait's going to bring it all to an end. And don't even get me started about the September 11th attacks. Well, which one is it? I would ask myself sometimes. Just last week, this gentleman died. This is Jack Van Impey. Everybody in my church loved Jack. He was one of those prophecy experts. He knew the Bible back and forth and how it all fit together for the end of days. He had a television show like for 40 years. And what he did on this television show is his wife would read a headline from the newspaper and then he would comment from the book of Revelation about what it meant. For 40 years he did this. He died in just this month. Well, now last month in January. And he died about three days after the eruption of conflict between Iran and the United States. His wife read the headline, and he said this last month. Well, this is it. Russia, all the Orient, Revelation, it says that China, North Korea, all of them, this is going to be the bloodiest war in the world. The blood will flow to the height of a horse's bridle for 200 miles. Fear, and a lot of it. And it damaged me. It's not an exaggeration to say it damaged me. I was petrified as a child. Petrified as a teenager, even as a young man. I was told not to worry too much about picking a college or a career because the world would end before then. It had to. I would lay in my bed at night, especially on a Sunday night after fiery services at church or after a revival meeting. And I would lay in my bed at night and tremble. Sweat rolling off of my little body. And I would get up at 2 in the morning and walk down the hall and look inside my parents' room just to make sure they hadn't been raptured and I had been left behind. I would get physically ill during long, fiery sermons. And I told you last week, I would sometimes go forward just to make it stop. I would. I'm going down there and I'm going to pray a prayer and make a commitment and volunteer for the Congo. I'm going to do whatever will stop this spiritual waterboarding because it's killing me. My mother and I were talking a few years ago. I think Bobby's going to edit this out. That'd be nice, Bobby, thanks. My mother and I were talking a few years ago and she was putting the screws to me about how I was raising my children. Don't do that. Grandparents, how many of your grandparents? Leave your kids alone. 
I was getting that son conversation, not I'm her son. S-O-N. Should, ought, need. You know that? This is what you should do. This is what you ought to do. This is what you need to do. You ever had those conversations? I was getting that one. I'm respectful, but I kind of had enough. And I said to my mother, Mother, I'm not going to do to my children what was done to me. She was horrified that I would say that. And she said, None of that hurt you. You were raised right. It's just a good phrase, raised right. You were raised right. You got saved. And God is my witness. I said, I don't know if I got saved or not. I think it was a panic attack. We didn't talk for a few weeks. Maybe I'm being facetious. Maybe I'm not. But it has taken me years of processing, detoxing, deconstructing, rebuilding, and not to mention a good bit of money spent in my 20s for therapy to recover some sense of spiritual health. Because that is a crime. When Jesus of Nazareth came to set people free, and we inflict fear on people to such a degree that they cannot function. That is not healthy spirituality, and that is not the God that I know. And that's all I know how to say. Well, one of the heavy hammers used on me was this story we read today. And it seems to fit the bill. Jesus tells the story of the ten bridesmaids. You heard it. Jesus is coming. It's going to be in the middle of the night. He's going to catch you sleeping, and you're going to get left behind. Is that how you read it? Well, look at it a little closer. Jewish marriage in Jesus' day had three steps. First, you were engaged. Ladies, you're going to love this. You were engaged for up to 10 years. Do you know why? Because when you were five or six or seven years old, your father picked your husband for you. You thought your first marriage was bad. <laughs> or your second, I don't know. So you had this long engagement period. At the end of the engagement period, there was a betrothal period. It lasted for a year. At that point, husband and wife were not yet husband and wife, but they were legally bound together. It's at this stage of the game that Mary goes to Joseph, who is betrothed, and says, I'm, I'm having a baby. In that one-year period, they're bound together by law, and Joseph's only conclusion was that she had been unfaithful. And the scandal breaks out, and then the angel, of course, says, no, she's with a child by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, after this period, the marriage vows would finally come. But it's nothing like what we have today. You didn't hire the caterers and find the best photographers and the best venue, send out RSVPs and regrets. You know, you still, people still invite you to weddings, right? It's not really to celebrate. They just need to know how big the bar tab is going to be and how many plates to have with the cater. You know, and it's important that you RSVP back for that. But in those days, the whole village was invited. Everybody. But you didn't know exactly when the ceremony was going to take place. A herald would show up in town and say, the groom is coming. And buddy, all hell broke loose. Now we got to get with the caters. Now we got to press the tablecloths. Now we got to make sure we got enough wine. Now we got to make sure we have enough food. Now we got to clean the house. Everybody, get to work, get to work, get to work. 
But they didn't know, is he coming today? Is he at the city limits? Is he knocking at the door? Will it be two days? Will it take a week? It was hard to say. Because he might be somewhere still finishing up his wild oats. We don't know. But he's coming. But we don't know exactly when. And the whole village just sort of was in hover mode. Trying to go about their lives. But getting ready for this big event, this big wedding. And sometimes, as in Jesus' story, he might show up in the middle of the night. That's what happens here. And the way I always heard it is, Jesus is going to show up at the time you least expect it, and he's going to catch you sleeping, you're going to be left behind. Look at the text. Who was sleeping? All of them. They're all asleep. Why? Because it's the middle of the night. The bridegroom's here. They get up. They light their lamps, those who have enough oil, and they go to the procession. Those who don't have enough are left out. Read that very carefully and you'll find out that this isn't a story about the end is near. This is a story about the end isn't going to get here as quickly as you think. Those who are prepared are prepared for the long haul. Those who were unprepared thought, well, I've got enough to get by. It's going to happen any minute now. And they don't get in the door. Do you see how that changes the complete understanding of this parable? It's not an apocalyptic parable. Jesus isn't saying get ready. Jesus is saying stay steady. Because this is going to take a lot longer than you think it will to wrap up. And those who are prepared are those who are ready for the long Hall. So let me ask you a question that was asked almost every Sunday. I was growing up in church. What if Jesus comes back today? Well, I hope he don't. I'd like to see the Super Bowl tonight. I really would. So here's a better question. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't come back today? He doesn't come back next week. He doesn't come back next year. He doesn't come back next decade. He doesn't come back next century. What kind of world and what kind of faith are you going to leave behind for those who come after you? That you were sitting around in your white robe ready to check out? Or you put your hand to the plow and did the work of faith for all the years that you had? Being prepared is being set for the long haul. Cindy has been asking me a lot lately. Is this the end of the world? She says it almost every day. Coronavirus. We're at each other's throats. Australia's burning to the ground. Disease, earthquakes, wars, rumors of war. I keep answering her the same way, and she just hasn't got it yet, but that's okay. Is this the end of the world? This is what I tell her. We're not that lucky. We're not that lucky. We got to live through this. Whatever this is. And I pray that kingdom comes. And we should. I also pray sometimes that a meteor would strike the earth and put us all out of our misery. Not really. Sometimes. The point is this. It's a little bit arrogant to think that we are the last possible generation that could live on this planet. 
and that we're going to be the ones to bring it all to an end. We're going to have to live through this, whatever this is. Because if history is any indication, Jesus won't be back today. He won't be back during your lifetime. How are you going to live for the long haul, not the quick checkout? That's really the question. Because I don't want to be a theological caricature of today's politicians who just kick the worst problems down the street for another generation to solve. I don't want to be a spiritual retreatist who backs away afraid of the world and gets in my little bunker and I got mine, 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 mine and everybody else can burn. I am not going to live in fear the rest of my life. That is of, let's just use an old good, since I'm talking about hell and everything else today, that's just of the devil. We are not called to live lives of fear and worry all the time about the conditions of the world. We're called to be faithful in this world for the task that we have in front of us. And where there is faith and there is hope and there is joy, where there is love, fear cannot thrive in places like that. Faith is not the declaration that Jesus is coming soon so I don't have to bear the hardships of being a human being at this particular time in history. Faith is keeping your hand on the plow, your eyes on the prize, your steps on the path, enough fuel in your tank to keep going, and the God-given strength to be found at the task, lighting the world whenever it is that Jesus returns, whether it's today or centuries from now. Faith is about the long haul. I think we could adjust our thinking with a little lesson from the native tribes of this country. It's the great law of the Iroquois. It's called the principle of the seven generations. When someone took a role of leadership in that tribe, they would be charged with words that sounded something like this. Now, you must not think only of yourself or of your family not even of your generation. Think of those faces yet to arrive. Everything that we have now is the result of our ancestors who handed forth to us our language, the preservation of the land, our way of life, the songs and dances, our faith in the great spirit. Future generations are going to need these same things even more. And then they would say, may the thickness of your skin be as seven spans as you carry within you the seven generations that have not yet been born. What a change of perspective. If we are fortunate, some of us will live to see our grandchildren. Some of us will live to see our great-grandchildren, maybe even our great-great-grandchildren. That's four generations. That's a long, long time. But after them will come their children and their children and their children. What kind of faith, what kind of world, what kind of legacy do we leave them? Let us live such lives of faithfulness and hope and light 
that when the history books are picked up by our our descendants and they read about us, because certainly they will, let them read that we were found faithful, lighting the way of Christ, true to our vocation for as long as God gave us to live, whether Christ returns today or a thousand years from now.